on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. People believe, okay, to reinvent Las Vegas, we have to shift from this high roller model to a more mass market retail model. And Circus Circus under Bill Bennett was really poised to do that. And that's why Circus Circus became in the 80s the most profitable casino company in the world. Because again, they don't have a lot of money, but there's a lot of them, a lot of a lot of low rollers. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 92 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Before we get into this episode of the show, I wanted to thank my guest from the last episode, Anthony Smith, one half of the duo behind the website Mayhem in the Desert. Anthony and his wife, Megan, are legit true crime junkies who've put together an incredible site chronicling some of the never-before-heard stories of the lesser-known crimes that have shaped the history of Las Vegas. If you haven't listened as of yet and you want to learn more, head to the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 91, Crime and Punishment, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus once said, The only constant in life is change. And perhaps nowhere else on the planet is that more accurate than Las Vegas. It's constantly evolving, always trying to figure out new ways to bring new people and new revenue to the city. From the late 80s through to the very early 2000s, Las Vegas decided to cater to a group of travelers they'd never attempted to attract before. Families. From castle-shaped hotels to pirate battles in the desert to full-blown amusement parks, Vegas made no secrets about who they wanted visiting during that era in its history. But where did it all start? And how did it end up? Making his second appearance on the podcast, my guest for this episode is David Schwartz. David is an author and a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who studies gambling in casinos, popular culture, tourism, and Las Vegas history. We talked about some of Las Vegas's early attempts at being family-friendly, what led to the initial push to try to attract families to a city known for adult fun, and the eventual shift away from that strategy. Please enjoy my conversation with David Schwartz. Even going back to the 50s at the Desert Inn, they had what they call the Kachina Doll House, which was pretty much a daycare center for children. That didn't really take off, but it was there. In the 70s, you had the Youth Hotel at the Las Vegas Hilton, which was also essentially a daycare center where people could drop their kids. And that was there for many years. It eventually got replaced by Star Trek The Experience. So that's where that was. And of course, obviously, I mean, the big one would be Jay Sarno making the decision to open Circus Circus, essentially a giant circus on the Las Vegas Strip. 
Yeah, and that's really, that was Jay Sorno's idea was that, well, I am a family man, I have children, and I like gambling, and I like looking at scantily clad women, so we should have a casino that has kids games, and then topless shine girls, and craps, all kind of jumbled together, and everybody, you know, who would find that offensive, because I, I love all that stuff, and I love my kids, so that's great, that's exactly the atmosphere you want. It's always just struck me as very very bizarre that Jay Sarno, who put together Caesar's palace, this, this palace of opulence where everybody would be treated as a Caesar and this massive luxurious resort would go from that to a circus. It's always just seemed so odd to me. Yeah. I mean, well, originally his idea was this was supposed to be kind of upscale, this adult circus that you could also take your kids to. The problem was he couldn't get funding for the hotel tower. So he had to wait four years to build the hotel tower. That's when he got the Teamster money. If he could have built it in 1968, he absolutely would have. So it wasn't a conscious attempt. He was just desperate. He wanted to get away from Caesars and he just didn't, couldn't get enough money to build the hotel to make it that opulent. But, you know, even his, he had, he lived in a suite at, at Circus Circus and it was this two floor pink flocked wallpaper and everything, just very, his idea of opulent. So it is interesting. After Bill Bennett and Bill Pennington bought it, they're the ones who pivoted it to value, value, value. And that was very successful. And, you know, notably, they were much more successful as operators than Sarno ever was. And uh, not to spend a whole ton of time talking about Circus Circus, but I mean, for the longest time, I know when Circus Circus was in the, the MGM resorts portfolio, it was one of the most profitable properties in their portfolio pretty much right up until the time they sold that property. Yeah. I mean, it always made a ton of money, at least under Bill Bennett and Bill Pennington, because the idea was, at least in the 70s, we charge people $20 a night for a room. We guarantee them a room. And there's a lot of people who want to pay $20 a night for a room and they each have money. You know, They're not high rollers, but each of them has a little bit of money. And it's actually a much less volatile business than going after high rollers. And you don't know if they're going to show up. You don't know if they need butler service. You don't know if they're going to win or lose. Whereas if you get, you know, 5,000 people in your hotel over the weekend playing $100 at slots, pretty sure you're going to get that money. So let's talk about the 1990s. I know there's a lot of people in Las Vegas that would probably like to forget that whole era on the Vegas Strip, but Vegas really did make a a push towards trying to bring families into Las Vegas. What was it that that predicated this push? Was it just simply the city trying to reinvent itself, trying to bring in a different crowd? What what was it that caused them to go that direction? It was a series of things. You know, first of all, you had that recession like 78 to 82. There was that bad recession in the US and many other parts of the world that wiped out the Vegas business model as it was, which was more dependent on high rollers, more dependent on serious gamblers. So, and if you look at the numbers, you can see the bad gaming debts spiked. You know, they went up really high. So they just weren't getting the money from that. People believed, okay, to reinvent Las Vegas, we have to shift from this high roller model to a more mass market retail model. And Circus Circus under Bill Bennett was really poised to do that. And that's why Circus Circus became in the 80s the most profitable casino company in the world. Because again, they don't have a lot of money, but there's a lot of them, a lot of of low rollers. And the other casinos 
also started to pivot towards this. It's kind of interesting. In 1979, Circus Circus opens up their RV park and Caesar's Palace opens up the Fantasy Tower, which I think is Nobu now. I, I used to know this. I might be wrong in that. I believe it's now Nobu, but they opened that up. And that was geared as this, you know, lavish high roller amenities, which company did better, Circus Circus, everybody else in the strip took notice of that. And if you look at the 80s, you can see quarter slot machines are becoming the dominant denomination. And really, the table games are starting to recede even on the strip. The strip is becoming a little bit more like downtown. So that's that kind of was the base for it. You start seeing that around like 83, 84. By 85, it's pretty much in full swing. 89, Steve Wynn gets the idea for the Mirage. And the idea for that, as you can see in the prospectus, as you can see in the media materials when it opened was, this is a resort for affluent young families. Affluent people with families will come here. This is the first casino in Vegas that is a hotel with a casino attached, not a casino with a hotel attached. And the idea even for Mirage, again, according to the prospectus, is that this would attract this group of people who hadn't come to Vegas, which were wealthy people who had kids. That was that was the original plan. It was taking that mass market, something that was called the Burger King Revolution, where basically they put a Burger King in the Riviera, which was the first fast food restaurant in a casino. And the idea like, hey, if you want to attract people in this generation, you've got to give them something familiar. You've got to appeal to these people who aren't high rollers. So yeah, Burger King is in. Bacchanal is out. I had read something about that whole Burger King model and and the whole idea of putting a Burger King in the Riviera and making it a, an attraction. And it always seemed a little bit odd to me that that was a thing. But I mean, realistically, that still goes today. There is that giant Taco Bell, the Taco Bell Cantina right on the strip. That's a part of the Planet Hollywood and Miracle Mile complex there that is constantly busy and i'm always seeing stuff on social media about it with people um getting married there and and posting videos tiktoks and instagram and such from there and and so i guess i mean they're still doing it to this day yeah and like i've heard i don't know if it's true but i've heard that the in and out is the most profitable in and out in the country i've heard that the denny's and that one of the denny's in the strip is the most profitable denny's and the the guy at the riviera who got the idea to do that jeff silver told me that he saw it from his window, we could see Circus Circus and he could see people walking past Circus Circus in their 199 buffet and going to McDonald's. And he just got the idea, hey, people want that familiarity. And it's also po- possible that they'd already eaten at the Circus Circus buffet and that was why they were going past it. But, you know, the idea was a sound one, which is that people, even if they come to Vegas, want something familiar. And yeah, a lot of people say, well, why would you go to Denny's? If you're in Vegas, you know, not everybody's a foodie. So not everybody wants that unique experience and they just want something to eat. They know what it is. They move on. So after Steve Wynn opens up the Mirage in the late 80s, and as you said, he he opened that with the intention of trying to attract um, affluent people with their families, you see this influx and opening of resorts that are maybe a little bit more blatantly family friendly and uh, a little more budget conscious. I'm thinking of the Excalibur and Luxor and the second incarnation of the MGM Grand with its amusement park and um, Treasure Island. Yeah. So Mirage, I mean, families were one level. It was also very much into high rollers and traditional gamblers. You know, they hosted boxing. 
but a lot of it was was building that filling a 3000 room resort you need to have a lot of people and families were one of the group of course business travelers too excalibur which circus circus developed was really an extension of circus circus and that idea saying hey we give people a you know the circus circus idea of giving them a cheap room there's a lot of them add on to that this theming element of old england medieval england and making it even more family friendly for people. So I think you have that, you know, Luxor, of course, did evolve a lot. Originally, that was supposed to be their answer to Mirage, but there was a lot of changes. And eventually they, you know, that property obviously has pivoted a lot. But I think, you know, I remember most fondly the version with the canals and the animatronic camels and, and all that. So you had that, you know, and of course, Treasure Island is a big one, which is basically Steve Wynn had the kind of GM model for for giving people stuff at every price point. So you have the Golden Nugget downtown, you have the Mirage, and then you have Treasure Island, which was Mirage on a 400 million or so budget instead of a 600 million or so budget. You know, basically the same thing, make it even more appealing to families. And some of these resorts really did try to go the extra mile to bring families in, didn't they? I mean, you mentioned um, Luxor having the Nile River ride and the animatronic camels. Um, Excalibur was probably the the be-all and end-all of that between just the fact that they were shaped like a giant castle. They also had the, um, the Merlin the Magician and the big dragon show out front with the fire-breathing dragon and all of that going on, which, I mean, again, was obviously um, intended to bring those families in and give them a little piece of Vegas. Yeah, you know, and again, the idea was it's not a dumb idea. There's a lot of people with kids. If you want to expand Vegas from being a 20 million person year market to a 40 million year person visitor market, it would help to have something for kids to do. So it was not a bad idea. I just want to chat a a little bit, focus a little bit on Treasure Island, because as you said, I mean, this was Steve Wynn's attempt to maybe go after those families that weren't quite... um, quote unquote, maybe elite enough to (laughs) go spend time at the Mirage. As you say, he scaled down the budget, but the hotels were very similarly laid out, similarly sized. But then he took it that extra step by adding the pirate theme to the whole resort. Yeah. And I think it shows a sense of whimsy, a sense of not taking yourself seriously that maybe casinos have lost where like, hey, at the end of the day, it's a gambling joint and it's nothing, you know, it's not like it's... uh, the Uffizi or something. <laughs> it's not like it's it's people are here to necessarily see the fine art of the, they did have that, the Bellagio. It's a place for fun. And that is, you know, pretty, I guess for better or for worse, pirates are seen as being pretty fun. And something that I came across when I was doing my research for, for our conversation. And I, I came across this on YouTube. Um, Steve Wynn put together a one hour long TV special called treasure island the adventure begins which was essentially a 60 minute commercial for the opening of treasure island it's great it's such a time capsule it's one of my favorite pieces of vegas media you know basically this family is coming to treasure island there is the wife who's going to convention the husband who's kind of a somewhat disengaged dad and the young son who i think is like 12 or so son who there's this great shot of them driving down the strip and the son's like wow the flamingo this is awesome like yeah like every 12 year old would be that into that so it's, it's pretty cool 
But basically, the young boy has an encounter with Steve Wynn and then has this magical journey where he's meeting pirates and learning the key to the map. And the whole movie is synchronized to the demolition of the dunes, which was which happened the opening night of Treasure Island. So it's really, it's just incredible cross-promotion and just incredibly... 3D chess marketing here, where not only are we blowing up the dunes, not only are we tying it to the opening of Treasure Island, we're putting it in a movie. I mean, it really, it, it's, it's marketing 101. It is. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just a phenomenal document. And for me, you know, one of my favorite parts of it is J.G. Hertzler, who played Martok in Deep Space Nine, was had the role of Black Dog, one of the pirates. And it's just great because he has a very distinctive voice. So I think of him in, in character as Martok going around Treasure Island. It's kind of a kind of a cool idea. Now, as great as all of this was for some of these new resorts and for other resorts and bringing um, an entirely new crowd into Las Vegas, not every resort or hotel and casino was on board with this particular marketing strategy were they yeah and again it's it speaks a lot to how they're viewing their niche in the tourist market where not all of them want to get involved in this they don't want to alter the amenities you know for a while it looked like this was going to be the future though you know you had uh grand slam canyon which is now adventure dome at circus circus you have mgm grand adventures when steve Wynn first bought the dunes People said, well, he already has a really nice casino and he already has the family casino. We think he's going to build a theme park there where the Bellagio is now. So imagine that alternate reality where instead of the Bellagio, Steve Wynn builds a theme park. You know, there was talk of bringing, you know, basically MGM Grand, Grand Adventures was supposed to be something like Universal Studios is in L.A., but in Vegas. That was the original concept, you know, theme park based around this, you know, movie company. And it would be interesting. And, you know, people were, there was also talk of developing something like that at um, the Desert Inn before Kirk Corian sold that. Originally, you were going to have that at the, de- you were going to have something like that at the Desert Inn too, on the land where Wynn and Encore are now. So it's, it was kind of interesting at this time, people believed that this was the next step. And with Orlando having Universal Studios, of course, Disney, L.A. having Universal Studios, it didn't seem that far-fetched. When it comes to the um, the folks who were, I guess you could almost call them anti-family-friendly of that particular era in Vegas history, um, one of the ones that really pops into my brain specifically is the Tropicana. When I was doing some reading and research before this this conversation, I came across some pretty interesting pieces of magazine marketing that the Tropicana did that made it very clear that they did not want families coming anywhere near their property, or more so, I guess they wanted to put out the message that, hey, if you want to stay away from families, we're the place for you to come. Yeah. I mean, and Tropicana was, was skewing this way, you know, there, but if you look at that property, it was a smaller property. They didn't have the amenities for families. The one asset they had that was, I think their best asset at the time was their pool area, which when I first came out to Vegas, you know, having grown, grown up in Atlantic city, coming out to Vegas and then seeing they've got the swim up blackjack tables and the, I mean, the, and again, if, if I walked the, the pool now, I'd be like, oh yeah, it's a casino pool. But at the time, my mind was blown. I'm like, oh my God, like, I can't believe this is happening here. 
this is just like, you know, this is wild. So yeah, so they had a very different identity and they, they were conscious of that. And again, that, that's smart. If you can't add a theme park, you're not going to want to get into that business. So I guess the next question then, or, or um, two questions would be question one, was the family friendly era for Las Vegas a successful one in that did they manage to increase their visitorship and their tourism and their, their spending? And the follow-up to that would be, was it the right group of people? Was it the right move? Was this, was this who they wanted to bank their future on? I'll answer the first question first. You know, yes, absolutely. It did grow the market. 1994 was the single biggest percentage year and the single biggest overall increase in visitation to Vegas throughout its whole history. So nothing they did in the 50s or 60s moved the needle proportionally as much as that. And, you know, again, that's MGM Grand, Treasure Island Luxor opening, in addition to all the other attractions. So, yeah, I think it did. You know, did it attract the right crowd? I think it did for the time, but I think Vegas keeps evolving. And as you had gaming proliferate in the 90s, they saw the need to go to nightlife, which is going to be antithetical to families. But I think one thing that people lose sight of is there there is still a layer of family-friendly Vegas going on. I mean, if you go to the Strip, and for some people this is a bad thing, but you're going to see a lot of people pushing strollers, you know, and that's... The issue, I think, is that most of the affluent travel tends to be not families. Most of the travel family is not relatively affluent people, which it's like, it seems kind of classist to me because, yeah, like working class people, middle class people, they have a right to take their kids someplace too. And, you know, Vegas, there's a... There is a lot of stuff here for kids to do in Vegas, although obviously not everything. You mentioned the shift to nightlife, and I found it very interesting when I was doing some reading that that move happened almost overnight, didn't it? In that these properties that had previously been focusing so hard on on bringing in families decided, boom, we can make a ton more money by building these multi-million dollar nightclubs and where there had never been one of these on the strip before, all of a the sudden there was a half a dozen of them. Yeah, I mean, it did happen pretty quickly because one thing about Vegas is the casinos do pivot pretty quickly. It's kind of interesting how they do that. Yeah, I mean, they did pivot to the nightclubs really quickly because that was something that no other place could replicate. You know, one of the problems with the family-friendly thing is they kind of did it, but they never attracted something that would be like a Universal Studios level attraction where you would tell your family, hey, we're going to Vegas, we're going to do Universal Studios or anything like that. I mean, if if you imagine that MGM Grand Adventures, instead of having however many rides they have, it wasn't that many, was an actual huge experience that it would take you two days to see all of, you know, that would have been much different. It's just that they, I, I think they maybe got cold feet. And that kind of brings me around to the next thing that I wanted to talk about was the um, the de-theming of the resorts. And I mean, I think MGM Grand probably went a little bit further than anybody else in that um, for those that may not be familiar, and you, you mentioned it briefly there, David, was the amusement park that MGM Grand used to have out the back of the hotel. I mean, in addition between that and the fact that they were a full-on Wizard of Oz-themed resort with... 
Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion, plus a whole follow the Yellow Brick Road theme leading out to that amusement park, which eventually became um, the Lazy River, right? I think it's the Lazy River. And is there something else back there where it used to be as well? Well, yeah, there's the condos and there is Top Golf and other stuff too. And I think they've expanded the convention space too, but yeah. And then you've got um, Treasure Island, which didn't so much do a de-theming, but more of a, a re-theming in renaming themselves TI and getting rid of the original pirate show, replacing it with the Sirens of TI. Yeah, with the bad double entendre and all that stuff. To me, it's like my personal feeling is you cheesy stuff works because half the audience like thinks it's really cool. The other half, the audience will appreciate it ironically. So you get everybody when you try to go for that edgy, you know, sexy, edgy thing, like some people are going to get it, but a lot of people aren't going to really like it. So I, I personally, I like the cheesier stuff, you know, that that just works for me because again, People don't come to Vegas to see boring stuff. They come to see different stuff. And what's more different than a pirate battle in the middle of middle of the desert? Yeah, I'll never forget. My wife and I were, um, I want to almost say, unfortunate enough to experience the Sirens of T.I. show on a Vegas trip many years ago. And I mean, it was just... There was a lot of eye rolling and a lot of uh, uncomfortable laughter from people around you who had brought kids to see the show. And it, it was just, it was, it was not good. Yeah. I mean, if you can do it and you know, I'm not much of an art critic or anything like that, but I remember not really enjoying it. You know, although certainly everybody worked very hard who went to who play the roles and all that, but it's just like, and like, again, I don't really, I mean, there's a place for that kind of stuff and it's probably not on Las Vegas Boulevard with, you know, everybody driving around you. And so, yeah, I mean that, I think again, if you keep it the kind of cheesy family friendly one, maybe with a little bit of a wink, I think that that to me, that works better. You know, if you're going to do it, like just go all in with it. Don't try to make it like, Hey, this is some kind of upscale, sexy pirate. Like, this is freaking pirates. And the other thing that got me when they de-themed Treasure Island and took the pirates out, that was when Pirates of the Caribbean was a huge franchise. Like lean into it. Like, yeah, we are pirates. Like do this. It's just, that's probably why I'm not a casino executive. That's the way I would have gone. But yeah, we're pirates. It's fun. Come on down. So hopping into your time machine or peering into your crystal ball or shaking the magic eight ball, whatever way you want to look at it. Do you think Vegas will ever go this far again i mean in that as we said earlier there are a lot of family-friendly attractions along the strip and around the city and things for people with kids to do but do you think they'll ever go this far again are we ever going to see themed resorts along the lines of say the excalibur that are are very blatantly marketed towards bringing families to vegas or do you think that that is that is done I think it's going to remain a layer. You know, I th again, they have the challenge of filling a 3000 room hotel and you need a lot of different people to do that, especially if the business travel is going to be a couple of years in coming back. You know, you need to find a group of people who can show up during the week in the summer. That could be families, you know, again, and it's not, I think if it's handled well, it, it can work. David, thank you so much for once again, jumping on the podcast and, and having this discussion with me. I really do appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, it's great to talk to you about this. It's a great conversation to have. And yeah, this is probably one of the most fun eras of Vegas history, because if you think about where the strip was in 1990, or even where it was in 1988 and where it was in 1998, it's totally different. So it's, it's kind of amazing that all that happened. If you want to learn more about Las Vegas's family-friendly era of the 1990s, visit the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. I've posted a few links to articles and papers written on the topic, as well as the Treasure Island TV special that David and I discussed in our conversation. If you want to check out any of David's books, visit the Vegas Book Club link at jeffdoesvegas.com to purchase your own copy of At the Sands and Grandissimo, The First Emperor of Las Vegas, or visit David's website at dgschwartz.com. And don't forget to check out David's previous appearance on the podcast all the way back in episode number 78, A Place in the Sun, which you can find in the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And that wraps up another episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at JeffDoesVegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. The Jeff Does Vegas podcast is a Walker New Media production.